With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, Dave Dufour is back. And we're going to run through some of these early round one playoff games. Dave, how you doing, man? I'm good. You know, you you should not announce my name at the beginning. You should just wait until the end. See if we could trick a few people into listening. And then well, and then tell them it was Dave. And they could be like, oh, I didn't even know. I wouldn't have listened. Well, I feel like <laughs> your, your voice is so ubiquitous on podcasts. Like, just period. Right. Not even across the athletic. Just, like, no. anywhere. That people yeah. just know who you are at this point. So, I, I don't think there's any tricking people. You know, I like to tell people I'm not here for a long time. So I'm here for a good time all the time. So I've just basically like, you know, I've been podcasting for like five years. And I'm pretty sure that I've recorded enough hours of audio that they could replace Siri with me. Right. It just wouldn't be difficult. So Apple, if you if you feel like you want to throw some money around, by all means, contact me. Uh, you know, reach out to The Athletic, maybe. Um, you know, see if we can work something out because uh, I definitely have been talking a lot. Would love to get some, you know, residuals on the, all this talking I'm doing. Well, I feel like it, you you podcast a normal amount. Like we said on the podcast with Ben Taylor, uh, you're always ready. You're always strapped <laughs> yeah. with the microphone. I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I listened to the podcast to hear what you guys said about me. So I'm just going to assume that it was bad. <laughs> oh, no, it was all good. I mean, no, Ben Taylor and I are big fans of you. You know this. And we're very glad to have you on the show. So what we're going to do here, we're going to do five to seven minutes on all eight of the first round playoff series. Uh, I want to start in the Eastern Conference because I feel like I've been starting in the Western Conference for the most part, doing a lot of these previews, doing a lot of different shows. So I think the series that's most interesting is probably Atlanta, New York, right? Yeah, I mean, as far as within the series itself, I think yeah. the other ones, you know, with the top three in the East, they have just differentiated themselves so much this year, I think, that their storylines are much more, especially now that Milwaukee is totally trouncing Miami, their storylines are much more about themselves, like within their their hierarchy, you know, yeah. how do the Bucks match up when they get to the Nets? You know, what are we seeing, you know, from Philly? Like, are they going to be able to score enough to keep up with Milwaukee or Brooklyn? So, yeah, I think Atlanta, New York is now at this point, now that Miami, like it's apparent what Miami is in this playoffs. I think, yeah, it's definitely compelling. So let's start with Atlanta and New York. And obviously that game for me so far, that game one was probably the best game of the playoffs. Would you agree with that? It was pretty fun. Um, I really liked the rock fight between Miami and, and Milwaukee in game yeah, one, you know, going good. into overtime, getting a Chris Mel and, and honestly, like the Bucks struggling to shoot the ball and still pulling out a win was actually great to watch. For somebody that wants to watch a team that has been really good for the last few years take that next step, I thought that was an important win for them, too. So, I mean, I might push back on that. I, I will say it was really, really fun. Felt like a real basketball game. Felt like a real playoff game. Uh, the crowd was awesome. Well, yeah, the crowd was awesome. We got the Trey Young explosion. We got the Alec Burks, like, weird playoff explosion, which so was cool. so cool and so fun, given, like, Alec Burks has, like, had to fucking fight for his career to, like, get healthy mm-hmm. and everything. So I'm really glad he had that moment. But that was all about Trey Young, and I thought it was all about the way that the Knicks defended Trey Young. Uh, I believe that I read a stat coming from one of those stats services i think it might have been second spectrum that the knicks played flat pick and roll coverage more often than any team in the nba this season mm-hmm. and in that first game against atlanta they played a pure drop i think because they were so worried about the threat of the lob to capella that they just kind of gave trey young all of that space in the middle to be able to live dribble pass and to be able to hit those floaters and obviously he hits the floater to win the game and that's kind of the story but 
it, it was a bit strange to me that the Knicks just mid game didn't really adjust to the way that, and especially late in the game when Trey got really, really good in that fourth quarter, they just didn't really adjust to the way that he was slicing them. Well, and it, the, every time Atlanta ran Spain pick and roll, it was a bucket, I, I think. I mean, that's anecdotal mm-hmm. off the top of my head. But yeah, you're right. I, I don't think the Knicks were able to hang in their drop coverage. And, and again, I don't get why they went away from what was working. It, it must be what you said. Capella was awesome this year. Yeah. But you're over-focusing on, on Capella at this point. And, and the guy who's actually dangerous is the guy who's a three-level scorer. You've got to stop Capella in one spot. That's it. Yep. You know, and you can find ways to do that. Uh, you know, their back line has been pretty good all year, I think. The guy rotating from the corner ha- has been on the money and yeah, yep. you're going to Atlanta's going to get you rotating. That is going to happen. They move the ball well w- when they get some penetration, but I-, I just don't think you can play drop. I don't know that you can play drop exclusively in the playoffs, period, but especially not against Trey Young. And it was funny I was talking to and NBA executive who feels like Atlanta has a real shot to give Philadelphia a series if Atlanta can get through New York because of that like ability to play drop maybe um, or ability to defeat the drop more than anything uh, I really love the way that Trey played I think he's going to be an absolute stud in the playoffs uh, I, I don't think this was a one game flash in the pan I saw some very smart people who had some real questions about the way that he would match up in terms of physicality I get that, but the way that he draws fouls, he doesn't just draw, like, ticky-tack ones. And, I mean, I guess you could say that they're ticky-tack because of the way that he goes about drawing them. But they're not actually ticky-tack because he's really good at drawing a lot of contact. And the fouls that he gets tend to be very obvious. So I thought that that would translate his live dribble playmaking like the two biggest things that are important come playoff time are three level scoring the ability to get your bucket at the rim from the mid-range and from beyond the arc and live dribble passing the ability to make quick processing reads across the court from any position and he does both of those things like i I really think he's going to be an exceptional playoff player and we've seen that so far you know, the other thing about his foul drawing that doesn't get enough attention, and this may even be the first time I'm saying it out loud on a podcast, but he's not a guy that draws a lot of the reaching fouls. He really does draw fouls with his body. Like, he draws, yeah. like, he gets guys to get their hips out, to get their knees out. Like, he is really good at just getting guys out of their their typical defensive stance, trying to stay in front of him. And, again, worrying about the passing. I mean, the guy, I thought that was his best skill coming into the league. Yep. was his passing, you know? Um, and so it's a little bit different. I, I'm i not going to say that I disagree with the people that are tired of seeing it, though, but I'm tired of seeing it generally. That is the game now. Like, the game is you are trying to sell foul calls. And a lot of these are real fouls. I mean, we could go spirit of the rule versus letter of the law on some of these, but they're fouls. And, and you know, you have to know as a defender going in, this is a guy who's really good at, and embellishing. I'm not even going to say tricking. Well, he's he, what he's really good he at is de- his deceleration is really good. Right. He's really yeah. good at decelerating and forcing you to contact into him. He's specifically trying to draw the foul, but he's really good at trying to draw the foul. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's just he's he's a very good player and, and good players. And especially when they're performing the way he did. I mean, he had a, one of the best playoff debuts ever. Yep. I think. For, for a guy um, in his position, for sure. It's, um, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know that they can win this series because I still I still trust the Knicks defense. I, I just don't think they're going to get, you know, as, as beat up by Trey Young in game two. But if the Hawks take game two, they're going to win the series. That's it. Like, it's a yeah. must win for the Knicks. They don't have the talent to climb out of that hole. And, and I thought that this series was close anyway, but that the Hawks had a built-in extra gear that I wasn't sure if they'd hit or not. And I still don't know if they're going to hit it. I think Trey hit it in game one, though. They're really talented. I think the Hawks are really good. I think they're really... Mm-hmm. Th- we haven't seen like a totally healthy Hawks team like for a right. while, it feels like. And DeAndre Hunter's back. DeAndre Hunter's back. 
I'll be interested to see if they can get a little bit more from him offensively. Like his, if they his play, defense a, has been good though. His defense was really good because he's one of the few guys that can really match up with Julius Randle. Um, if they play a flatter defensive coverage against Atlanta, DeAndre will become more important because they probably will need him to create a little bit more out of isolation as a scorer. Some of the skills that we saw early in the season from DeAndre, but I don't know. Like I, I'm pretty in on Atlanta at this point. Uh, I think that it's going to be a tough series. I think it's probably going to go six or seven games. I think I would take mm-hmm. Atlanta. Um, them stealing home court from the Knicks is really important. I think because that home crowd was amazing. Shout out Knicks fans, man. There's nothing like awesome. it uh, across the NBA. I feel like right now, I mean, uh, I'll just I'll those. You, I mean, there's there isn't because nobody has as many fans in the in the arena. I guess Dallas probably will on Friday, um, but I mean, it it just it felt good to watch what felt like a normal playoff game. Yeah, um, and, and it was you know exaggerated maybe because they were Knicks fans as well, and it's been it's been a a long drought at MSG. Um, yeah, I feel like DeAndre that's Hunter's it. defense. So DeAndre Hunter's defense the other in game one, I thought was completely overlooked by a lot of people. You know, he got on a switch onto Alec Burks when Alec Burks was just hot, and it was in the fourth quarter, and he just shut him down. Jumped, uh, jumped him on a drive going baseline, just jumped, cut him off, forced the ball out of his hands, and just took him completely out of the play. Then he comes down on the other end and hits a three. Yeah. And it's that kind of stuff that Atlanta hasn't had out of that spot. For a large portion of the year. And that is a big difference maker for them in the playoffs. Yeah. They have, they have shooting at four positions now. Yep. Which is huge. Like, they actually yeah. do need uh, someone like Alec Burks. They need someone like Derek Rose, who I thought was pretty good in that first game. Uh, because this is not a great series for Julius Randle, I don't think. Like, he'll get his points. He'll get his rebounds. Like, he will produce in some way. But I'm not totally convinced that he's going to do it like wildly efficiently. And then RJ Barrett, like as much as RJ really improved throughout the year, I think it's going to be interesting to see how his brand of driving basketball, even with the improvement shooting uh, late in the year, kind of translates because I feel like teams are really good at cutting off one thing. And the thing that the Knicks do really well is they get rj the ball on the right side of the floor and they get him downhill going to his left hand teams i think that atlanta will be able to stop that the question is how does rj kind of respond to that and is he ready i think in two or three years he'll definitely be ready is he ready for that now i'm not totally sure yet yeah i don't i just don't know i mean again everybody in this series is so young yeah um i mean including trey young that totally. maybe we need to be surprised by anything good and not not take too much away from from the bad stuff. Um, yeah. You know, th- there's certainly a matchup issue for for Randall, but in the regular season against Atlanta, he performed really really well. So yeah. it, it may not may not be the matchup issue that that we think it is, and I think that the Knicks will find a way to get him moving and catching the ball on the go. Yep, get that defense on his heels and. and a little less standing around on the wing, to be honest with you. I thought there was too much of that from him in game one. I really want to see him, you know, coming off a of DHO. Yep. Like, get him going downhill in space and just let's see what happens. The other series that we brought up here was Milwaukee and Miami. So, I actually really liked the way that Miami played in game one. I thought they played about as well as they could have outside of Jimmy and Bam. Uh Jimmy and Bam's offensive struggles were real. I think they went something like, uh, what was it? It was like 8 of 38 or something, like 9 of 36 from the field. And just straight up missed some bunnies. Like, I remember distinctly, like, Jimmy Butler smoking a layup from, like, a foot away. With uh, nobody near him. With nobody near him. And it was just like, what are are you doing? Right? Um, But, like, everyone talked about, oh, the Bucs are going to get this crazy shooting regression. Yeah, I guess they got it, but Miami defended them really well. Like, if you go and look at the shot quality numbers, Cooper Moorhead, who writes for the Miami Heat's website, he pulled numbers from Second Spectrum that said that was the toughest shot quality uh, game of the season for the Milwaukee Bucks behind the three-point line so far this mm-hmm. year. And, and you know who had a worse shot quality game in game one? Who? The Miami Heat. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. Because yeah. um, so Milwaukee was great. The, 
Exactly. And they shot 40% from behind the arc in game one. Milwaukee shot 16%. Miami losing that game was all I needed to know. Those numbers right there were exactly what I needed. Look, and I watched that game. And and you and I might disagree on this. The Bucks missed a lot of open looks. And, and yeah, I disagree with that. I mean, I, I, I rewatched every single shot. And according to the NBA tracking data, it was like 24 of their threes were uh, light or yeah so now that data sucks i know yeah, i was gonna say sucks. seth and i had a conversation it, about this yeah because you take it with a grain of salt but i'm just telling you that I, it also matches the eye test there were a lot of looks that were semi-contested shots that they should have made um but okay so let me let me like let me bounce back on this because yeah. i know that the um, I know some Bucks fans were frustrated with me when I said, "Hey, we're Miami also going to di- we might actually also did a good job on on, on whether uh, contests matter all that much for this kind of stuff." But but I think they do here. for what it's worth. So here, here's sure. why I will push back on that. Uh, mm-hmm. Half of those 24 were not like what the NBA classifies as uncontested, like wide open shots, right? Where you have six feet of separation right. or more, right? Um, if you look and back, those, I, I, that's the only number that really is any good. Correct. So if you look at the data, four of those like wide open uncontested shots were from Giannis and PJ Tucker, who are guys that like the Bucks don't want taking those threes, right? Like they might want Giannis right. to take one or two per game, but like you shouldn't expect those two guys to make those shots at a high level. And then on top of it, you look through like. Aaron Holiday, uh, no, I'm sorry, Drew Holiday, God, Aaron Holiday, um, Drew Holiday's career over the last three years make taking quote unquote open threes. Drew Holiday's made 33% of his open threes over the course of the last three years. So like, it's not like those shots are, and Drew Holiday's a good shooter. I'm not talking shit about Drew Holiday. It's that I think every player is different when it comes to how important contests are. Uh, Drew Holiday has a lot of kind of moving parts in his shot. He's a good pull-up shooter. He is a really good catch-and-shoot guy when he has some time to load up. But he's not like an incredible like contested shot maker at this point from behind the arc, that is. He's a really good driver. He has an in-between game. But like... I- I, I'll just say, like, I expected some regression. Like, I think that the expected shooting percentage from Milwaukee would have been something like 30% in game one, maybe like 28 mm-hmm. to 30%. And they shot 16. They shoot, so there was, was going to be some regression. It's a double digit win if they just shot 30%. And yeah. I mean, that's, that's at the end. But it's, like it's also, but like, you can go the other way too. Like, if Jimmy Butler doesn't go four of 23 and smoke layups. But like, back to your point, though, he was two of nine from three. The guy's been a 24%. Three-point shooter. He stopped shooting yeah. threes. Shooters tell you if they can shoot or not. This thing, look, he shot 32% in the bubble from three last year, right? Yeah. And that was an aberration. Everyone was like, oh, Jimmy's hot. And he shot 32% from three. Jimmy can't just, shoot from you know, three. It's fair. He can't shoot. And he can't shoot the long two. And a lot of those were long twos. He settled for too many fadeaways, I thought. I mean, he took some bad shots in that, like, I mean, he had an awful shooting. He's been bad in both games offensively. I mean, he's minus... 42, I think, for the series so far. Like, you just don't do that unless you're really stinking. And he plays a lot. So, you know, that that being said, they get smacked in the first quarter, and he's out there the whole time. So take that all with a grain of salt. But uh, every jumper he takes is a win for the Bucks, And him shooting yeah. nine threes is – I mean, that's why Miami lost the first game. They could have stolen one, and it could have gone to five. But now I, I expect the Bucks to sweep because I also think this is a little bit personal for them. Yeah, so I, I think it's think definitely personal a, for them. Like, yeah. we're not going to get a flat game three, I don't think. Now, with that being said, it's the Miami Heat, and we know how they show up. And Eric Spolster is probably the best coach in the league. Um, so, you know, I could be completely wrong. But I just think Milwaukee is a better team than we saw last year. They're doing better stuff. They, I mean, Drew Holiday was the sign. Like, that's the trade of the offseason. Yeah. And Miami is worse. Plain and simple. So, you know, this series, I don't know why people, I mean, people were picking Miami because that's just what people do. Yeah. But if you watch these two teams, they're opposite ends of the spectrum. Oh, I mean, I've been saying in the pre, like prior to the playoffs, like I think Milwaukee's very good. Like I think Milwaukee is the second best team in the East and has a real case in terms of a matchup to be able to to beat Brooklyn. Now, Mm -hmm. the things that happened in game two, I think are twofold. Milwaukee got much better ball movement 
they decided that they wanted to just make the extra pass constantly in that game. And it resulted, they drove and kick a lot, kicked a lot more. I felt like in game two versus game one. And obviously they got hot from three early and that carried over throughout the game. But even so, I believe that they had 19 assists on 43 field goals in game one in game mm-hmm. two. They had 20 assists on their 25th field goal. Like, it was just absolutely crazy how good the ball movement was for Milwaukee in that game. And part of it is like, hey, when Brid Forbes is knocking down threes like he was, like, Milwaukee's basically unbeatable. But I thought the ball movement was much better in that game. And then the number two thing is kind of what we're talking about with Miami here. Jimmy Butler has not been very good. Kendrick Nunn, who has kind of killed drop coverage throughout the course of the year, he's kind of their guy that they've needed. They've gotten Goran Dragic to step up, but none has been terrible throughout these two games so far. And that's a real problem for them. Um, the other thing that Milwaukee did really, really well, and I don't want it to go unnoticed in game two, was they really did a good job of chasing Duncan Robinson off of the three-point line. Mm-hmm. And he played not very well. And that's a he, huge only part. Got- Go ahead. He only got six threes up. Yeah. You know, I mean, they, they literally played him off the court to a certain degree. And I thought that was great game planning on their part. And again, it just goes to show that if you're if you're running out the tired old tropes about the Bucks, you just didn't watch them. Yeah. Plans. No, the Bucks are the Bucks are a more dangerous, better team this year, despite the fact that they won a fewer percentage or a lower percentage of their games this year. Uh mm-hmm. they're a very dangerous team, and I think that look, I, I still think I would take Brooklyn to be just because I think Brooklyn is ridiculous. But that doesn't have anything to do with the Bucks. It has to do with the fact that I think Brooklyn is great. And by the way, I'm sure we'll talk about this at some point. Milwaukee is a really interesting matchup on them. Uh these Next two series, I don't think we're going to spend a lot of time on. The point where I knew that Brooklyn was going to absolutely demolish Boston was when Boston, I think, was like 7 of 14 from 3. And Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and James Harden were like 8 of 35 from the field in game one in the first half. And Brooklyn was only down 4. Like, it was just like, okay, this is going to switch and it's going to change. And... Brooklyn is going to take over. They're getting better shots. Just Boston is shooting threes at a higher clip right now, and the three-point line can be the great equalizer. Uh, this is this is not a competitive series to me. No. No. And it wasn't going to be as soon as Jalen Brown was out. Like they, yeah. Boston didn't have a chance. And, and it's a bummer. Um, but there are, there are other reasons besides just Jalen Brown. When you've got three guys like, like Brooklyn has, there are not a lot of teams that are going to be able to beat you. Yeah, plain and simple. And Boston doesn't have the talent. Um, Brooklyn is interesting. The first half of that game, I would say they were disconnected. It felt like a lot of my turn, your turn stuff. Yep. Clearly, they sorted it out at halftime because they came out and immediately everything got better. Kyrie, Kyrie got it going in the third, and those guys rolled from there on out. I thought KD, with his post-game comments, I thought he nailed it. He was like, look, we were all, all running a little hot. <laughs> pressing a little bit. And once we figured out, just go relax and play our game, everything was fine. And it's funny because that's the same cliche stuff that, that players say all the time. The difference was how he said it. And he was like, we knew we were freaking out. Then we relaxed and everything was fine. And and you saw that in the second half. They, they relaxed and they, I mean, they just stomped them. Yeah, it was really just kind of ridiculous uh that that second half was very impressive particularly the third quarter i thought was really impressive Uh, i i don't i I just don't see this as being all that interesting we'll talk about brooklyn more whenever they get to milwaukee i think it's gonna be a sweep as well uh the 76ers were kind of interesting i'm gonna say i think that series is more competitive than brooklyn boston i still think the 76ers are gonna win like pretty easily probably in five games but I will say, like, it was it was just interesting in the way that, like, I, I didn't think that Washington had a great offensive game plan, and they still, like, kept it reasonably close. And that's, like, intriguing to me. Um, yeah, I think I think this should be a sweep, maybe five games. Um, I, I just don't I just don't trust Beal to be able to be at the level he needs to be at. 
to to make this a real series. You know, the the hamstring injury is just it's just too tough to come back from. Yeah. So I, I just I, I mean it's a bummer because you want to see these guys and, and they had such a great run to get into the playoffs. Um, you'd love to see them at at full health, but how many more games like game one does he have in him on a bad wheel? I mean, he he did not look good in the play in games. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't. So, and by the way, he scored thirty three points and had ten rebounds yeah. and six assists in the first game. So, like, and, he mean, was really good. And great. In the places where he was really right. good, were places where they took advantage of him like significantly. Right. Um, that drop coverage, and he was able to like just make these pull up mid range jumpers. The problem is he went one of six from three, and they need the pull up three point jumpers to go right. a little bit more from Brad. Uh, this is a tough series for Russ, I think, just because of the way that they're able to defend at the rim and then kind of bother him with length. Uh, look, you're probably right. You're almost certainly right that this is going to be a sweep. I'm just saying that, like, the guards of Washington, I thought that they could have done a better job of trying to attack Joel Embiid in space, which is something they didn't really try to do all that often and i would be interested to see if they are more willing to do that in game two game three and game four yeah we'll see yeah we'll see um, i just i mean look Embiid is just an unsolvable problem for them and <laughs> and by the way they scored 118 points on right. like essentially the best defense in the nba so offense really wasn't the problem the fact that they were getting right. murdered on defense was the problem so like exactly i mean ben but look i don't think philly is worried at all about game what they saw in game one and yeah, as a matter of fact, I expect Philly – I think Philly probably wins big in game two just because they're going to be frustrated that game one was so close. Like, I think you're yeah. going to see a little bit more from them. And, and you know, it's it's funny to say, but Tobias Harris could probably just average 40 in this series if he wanted to. He had 37 in game one. They don't have anybody on the Wizards that can guard him. Oh, no. Not even a little bit. I mean, he, he, he was just like rinsing Rui when he was out there. Yeah. I mean, Rui is about the best shot that they that they can throw at him, and that's not enough. Yeah, no, there, there's not really much of a shot uh, for them to defend him. Uh, and we saw it, by the way, like these bigger wings, like Jason Tatum in the playing game, for instance, dropping fifty on them. They're just going to give Washington problems. And Tobias is uh, Tobias is really good. Tobias is a really good scorer. So uh, let, that's been the East. Let's go uh, to the West. But before we do that, we'll take a quick commercial break. We're talking about players securing the bag when they get drafted in June. I need to tell you about securing your internet connection with NordVPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location from your ISP, hackers, and from other people looking to get your data. Everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, For instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla minus one recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan and you need a VPN if you want to go to like Amazon prime or something to be able to watch it. So When I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in, creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. NordVPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. Malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game Theory is offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. You're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions, just head to nordvpn.com slash game theory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y, to claim your account. Plus, 
With Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Go to nordvpn.com slash game theory to claim your account. Nordvpn.com slash game theory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord. And it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash game theory. All right, and we're back here. Let's go to the West. I, I will just, I, I'm going to open with Utah Memphis because I find everything about like the Utah Jazz fascinating right now. Uh, please let us never forget the game where Rudy Gobert fouled out, then tried to get in Kyle Anderson's face, then flopped on the sidelines uh, in order to try and draw a technical. And both Reggie Miller and Grayson Allen, both of whom are well-renowned for their uh, Oscar-worthy performances in the past yelled at Rudy Gobert, please get up. And basically we're like, this guy is just gotta be kidding me right now with these actions. Uh, shout out Rudy Gobert. We never can forget what you did in game one. Good God. That was ridiculous. Embarrassing is a word I would use. <laughs> Embarrassing. And I mean, I don't want to sidetrack us with the whole flopping conversation, but Oh man. Look, was, the foul baiting, the foul baiting's out of control. It's to the point where you have guys flopping on the sideline there. And I mean, I actually, I, I think Rudy should be suspended for that. Yeah, it, um, I wouldn't go that far, but I care. I, no, I think he should so, be fined for it. I will say I, that. Like, I think so. Yeah. I think someone should take some money out of his pocket because that was ridiculous. Yeah, I, I just you know, just sit, just sit on the fucking bench. You know what I mean? Like, I'm sorry. Like, just sit on the bench if you if you yeah. need to have some training done go around to the little training station. There's, you know, there's minimal fans nearby. Like I, I just don't, I don't know. It just doesn't make, and, and what, I don't know. They, he should, he should have been ejected. I agree with that too. It was so I think he should have been ejected. It, it's one of the most embarrassing and annoying things I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. And from a guy was... that I'm constantly having to defend because people don't understand his impact on the game. And, and I'm not going to let what he did when he wasn't a part of the game to detract from who he is as a player. But man, oh, it makes him hard to defend. That was tough. That was a real tough moment. Uh, so this is an interesting series in a number of ways. I've been kind of saying uh, the last few weeks that the thing that worries me about Utah is a lack of foot speed defensively in scramble situations. And I thought that John Morant did a really good job of taking advantage of that in game one. I thought that Memphis in general did a really good job of taking advantage of that in game one. Uh I also think that this is a totally different Utah team with Donovan Mitchell back. Donovan Mitchell is going to play in game two from all reports. Uh, we had a big write-up on it at The Athletic today uh, with Tony Jones and Sam Amick. who did a great job kind of explaining the mounting frustration between those two sides and the Utah Jazz and Donovan Mitchell. So I think that I'm not worried about Utah because I think Utah is really good, but if there is some mounting frustration there and if Donovan Mitchell uh, doesn't come in and like play well, uh, I, I will say like, I, I wouldn't want to go down. Oh, two to Memphis. I, I wouldn't oh, want to go down. Oh, no. two. You don't want to go down. Oh, two just for the math. You know, it's hard to come back from that. Just win it. You got to win four of your next five against the same opponent. That's really hard. Um, <laughs> I expect Utah to win this in five. Six at most, because I still think that there is a talent gap between these two teams. But you watch game one and you well, there's watch a math how Memphis gap came too. out. Well, there's, there's absolutely. An enormous math gap because Memphis is a huge mid-range team who tries mm -hmm. to score at the basket against Rudy Gobert, who is the toughest person to score against at the basket in the NBA. Utah yep. takes and makes They're a launching. ton of threes. They're launching. They did not shoot well in game one. I think that's going to change, mm -hmm. right? Like there's a significant math gap here. I'm not worried about the jazz. I just think that the whole situation surrounding the jazz is very interesting. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I do think that that, um, that is interesting. And my hope is that it's a guy being competitive, wanting to be out there and that it's not, you know, anything that's going to cause any sort of, uh, divide 
on that team because they've been connected all year, man. And, and it's part of why they've been so good. They had good team momentum out of the gate. They were getting energy from their own bench, you know, during games. And I mean, I've, I watched every single Utah Jazz game this year. That team in game one is they didn't show up very often during the regular season. Let's just say no. that. No, you, this is not a team that got punched in the mouth a lot and didn't respond. And they didn't, I felt, in game one. I, I don't think that they did to the best of their ability. Uh, I think game two is going to be a big time blowout because they have to respond in kind. And, and having Donovan Mitchell back out there is going to be huge. But yep. if he's not 100%, what happens? You know, do they say, all right, well, we've got to we got to play the guys who are going to get us into a position to succeed. And now you might run into other problems. But I think for, for Utah, they should win this series in yeah, five or six. They should. I think it's going to be five or six as well. And I think Utah's going to win. Uh, I, I will just generally note, like, these two teams played pretty close games this year. Like, it, it wasn't like mm-hmm. they were... You know, crazy blowouts, and that was without Memphis having uh, Jaron Jackson, at least in one of those games. Uh, if I remember correctly, I think it was both of those games. Uh, Jaron Jackson did not play. And then, if I remember correctly, I think that Donovan Mitchell did not play in one of those close games as well. So, I think that like there is an interesting matchup thing happening here where Memphis's athleticism is a real problem for Utah. But I also don't think it's enough to where this is a competitive series. Like, I, I think that may, maybe it's competitive in game, but I still think that you're right. I think it's a five or six game series for Utah. And I think that um, this whole Donovan Mitchell thing and this whole Rudy Gobert thing is more likely uh, to be a footnote than it is to be a actual uh, turning point in their season. You know? Mm-hmm. Yep. I okay. Agree with you. So we're going to get both of the LA teams tonight. Which LA team are you more worried about? Let, let's start with that. The Lakers, I think, um, because so much of it is about LeBron James health. Yep. You know, he has not been in attack mode at all. He's not driving with on to his right. So it yep. seems to me like he, he's having trouble putting that, that force going kind of outside to turn the corner on that right ankle. And even um, his attack mode in, the play-in game against Golden State was making passes and like just operating. Right yeah, like it he was like operating right until the end of the game. Right in like the third and fourth quarter, he was like operating as a distributor, picking out cutters, picking out kickouts, and then late in the game, he chose to like really try and drive an attack. That's really the only time we've seen him go into that like super attack mode. I think you're right. And Ethan, uh, Ethan Strauss just wrote a really great story today on The Athletic that, you know, kind of discussing all of the factors with LeBron's health. And uh, I'm intrigued. Uh, I, I, I'm worried. I'll be honest with you. I think I'm even more worried about Anthony Davis than I am about LeBron. Well, that was going to be part two is that <laughs> not only are you worried about LeBron, but also AD does not look right. Yep. He's shown flashes where he looks good. And, you know, this is how injuries work, especially. I mean, he's got Achilles tendinopathy. That, I mean, that that's not going away. No. And he doesn't look right. And, and you know, you see him catch a lob and you're like, oh, okay, maybe he's going to get it going. And, he, he, you know, he has a good game here and there and, and you start to feel good. But, I mean, he just kind of looks checked out, to be honest with you. And I don't know if that's just he doesn't feel right physically or just not altogether in shape or what it is. But, I mean... Would you call his activity defensively average? I, I would say game? it was like average for a normal player. I would <laughs> sure. say it was drastically yeah, below him. average for him. Yeah, right. I, I would right. say it was actually and, a pretty real problem for him. Yeah, and we know that the shooting is not what it was last year in the bubble. Like Nobody's expecting him to be the second coming of Kevin Durant uh, again. It's just not going to happen. But there i mean the, him not being able to defend at the level that we're used to is a problem but he's just not getting anything going offensively for him either he's settling for just contested fadeaways and things of that nature the three ball is just not a concern for opposing defenses because he's just not a great three point shooter like well, he's doing in the bubble and the offensive problem is significant for the lakers because it means that they have to have Dennis Schroeder on the floor uh, and he is pretty consistently bad. and he's well I, I'm not going to say he's bad, but he is certainly he's a magnet for Devin Booker this, and Chris Paul. Right. He's bad in this matchup because he's going he's to get 
put in the spin cycle. Yep. And, and you know, like, look, man, when the best big man in the game that features Anthony Davis and Marcus Saul and, you know, other guys is DeAndre Ayton, there's no way the Lakers are winning. So if Ayton continues to outplay these guys, I mean, this is going to be Suns in five. Well, and, and, and here's the thing. I'll be honest with you. I, I thought that the Lakers' offense was a much bigger problem than their defense. Oh, 100%. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, that was all the of the new. But that was all, the all of the headlines. It felt like all of the headlines, though, were about like, oh, yeah, the Lakers' defense. Um, you know, they played Andre Drummond, and Andre Drummond got put into the like rinse cycle. And then Dennis Schroeder was a magnet for Devin Booker. And um, they have to play Marcus All. They have to do X, Y, and Z. I agree with the fact they have to play Marcus All. But it's not because Marcus Hall is a former defensive player of the year. It's because they need ball movement offensively and they need spacing offensively. Like Andre Drummond has given them nothing right now. He is not giving them yeah. anything on that end of the court on the offensive end. So he's blowing bunnies. He's blowing bunnies for him. So, but, that, you know, but that's who he that is. Going. Like, yeah, it's, exactly. Like he's not a great finisher around the basket. Like, I kind of said I can't remember if I, said, if I said this on a podcast or not, but like to me, like Jonas Valanciunas is what we always wanted Andre Drummond to be. Actually, uh, he's a great pick and roll big man with great touch around the basket. Who's a good rebounder? Who is smart positionally defensively? Like Valanciunas might not look it, but like that's actually what Andre Drummond should be. What Andre Drummond is is a guy who didn't really get back on defense in transition. Grab some offensive rebounds for sure but was pretty bad on the defensive glass that game, I thought. And then has no chance in space defensively and just isn't like a great rim protector. So, And then on top of it, I think that Anthony Davis wants another center out there because his Achilles tendinopathy is not feeling great and doesn't want to have to play center for full games. It, well, he doesn't want to play center anyway. Well, but yeah, but I think that they, he's willing to play outplayed. center. I, I think got, that... They got yeah. dominated in his minutes at center in that game, which they weren't very many. But they they were dominated in those minutes. I mean, I just don't know. If the Lakers aren't healthy, I don't think they can win the series. And a lot of what I said coming into the playoffs was like, well, if the Lakers are healthy, I'm taking the Lakers. So I at least did a good job of uh, CYA there. But the truth is, I did not think that they looked this bad in the play-ins. Game one, they looked worse than the play-ins. Yeah. And and that I wonder is okay. They played a few games in a short amount of time now. Um, high pressure, guys coming back from injury, not in shape. Again, physically don't look right. Not just conditioning wise. Well, and, um, and let's let's give Phil, or, uh, Phoenix some credit here too. Devin oh, Booker was incredible. DeAndre Ayton was incredible in that game. Both of those two guys mm-hmm. were amazing. Mikael Bridges' defense was awesome bothering LeBron James like he made LeBron work for everything and LeBron is going to diagnose the way that that game one went and he's going to try and adjust and we've seen this before and it might end up working out for the Lakers but Mikael Bridges was really good in that game the thing that is like the Lakers saving grace to me right now is that Chris Paul hurt his shoulder like if Chris Paul is not healthy this becomes a real problem for Phoenix because Part of what makes them so tough to defend is that you always have to stay pretty honest on both of their backcourt members while also staying honest on their shooters. Like, you can't really help off of Cam Johnson or Mikael Bridges. You can help a little bit off of Jay Crowder, but he might burn you if you do that. Um, If you then put a point guard, like, for instance, like Cam Payne out there, things become way more difficult difficult for Phoenix in terms of the way that their offense runs. Uh, if it's a healthy Chris Paul and like they can shoot up Chris Paul's shoulder and you know maybe the shoulder is not as bad as we thought because he literally like could not dribble. He, uh, he looked like he didn't have feeling in his hands. Yeah, right? he did. Like, I mean, his right hand, it seemed like he had no touch on his fingers at all. Um, almost like he had a stinger. Um, if Look, a hot take here, but if Chris Paul can't dribble, then I'd say that the Suns' chances decrease quite a bit. Uh, I don't know how the hell he got through that game because it looked yeah. awful. And by the way, he was mostly okay. Like he turned the ball over once in the game. So yeah, um, you know he he still found a way to make stuff happen. And I, I thought it was uh, a, a really crazy performance from him to to play through it the way he did and almost finish that game left handed. Um, yeah. He was like taking some jump shots that I can't. I I don't know how he was. It looked painful. 
The one, the one like fadeaway that he made, I was like, like I don't know how you just it did over this. His head. Yeah. yeah, it was just man. He well, he just had to take the shot, and yeah. so you know, hopefully he's healthy. If he's healthy, then then you know the Suns should feel pretty confident about what they've got going on. You know, I thought Cam Johnson looked really good too. Yep, uh, was able to hold up physically you know, when he got stuck on LeBron. Some. Yep. Um, I don't know, man. I like Phoenix. I've liked Phoenix all year, and I I worried about the playoffs and, and the lack of experience and them folding a little bit, but. There was no folding in game one, and, and I think if you didn't see it in game one, especially after Chris Paul got hurt, I, I just don't know if we're going to see it. This is going to be a good series if if the Lakers can get healthy. But if they can't get healthy, I think Phoenix probably takes this in five or six. And by the way, the Lakers like did help off of Jake Crowder pretty significantly in that game. Jake Crowder took mm-hmm. seven threes. He made zero of those seven threes. I don't think that's going to happen again. Like, Yeah, exactly. I mean, his job isn't even to make them, right? Like, he's making good stuff happen just by taking those threes. So he's going to still, he's going to take seven threes, eight threes again, and he's probably going to hit two or three of them at least. And then Um, with DeAndre Ayton, too, like, yeah, DeAndre Ayton's probably not going to go 10 of 11 again, but a lot of those shots that DeAndre got were pretty easy because, like, he got, well, he got three or four of them just like by running the court hard and beating his man down the court, right? So He, he had eight offensive rebounds. Yeah, and did a really good job crashing the glass there. Like it was, and he was really good defensively on the glass as well. So, yeah, I'm not writing off LeBron. I refuse to write off LeBron. Uh, I it's think impossible. he is going to adjust to what Phoenix did. And if Chris Paul is hurt, then that totally changes the series, and this gets fascinating. I think Phoenix is a better team than what Los Angeles is right now because of the Anthony Davis concern and because lebron is not fully healthy but i think lebron is kind of good enough in terms of the way he thinks about the game to figure out how to play hurt anthony davis like just did not give them really much of anything in game one and he doesn't look healthy either so i'm i'm pretty concerned about the lakers at this point Mm -hmm. um and let's go to the the elders i'm not worried about (laughs) i'm worried about the clippers for one reason and it's that who is the Clippers' best five? Do you do you think that they know the answer to who their best five is? Shoot, I mean, look, I'm outside looking in, and I don't know. Um, I'm assuming it's, I mean, Kawhi, Paul George, and then it gets tricky, right? Like, would you say Zubac? Not in this series. He's barbecue yeah, chicken. Jokic was spotting, or not Jokic, sorry. Uh, Doncic was spotting him halfway down the court and just calling for the switch. I mean, he was calling for the screen on whoever was being guarded by Zubac. So, yeah. And, um, and let me, I'm sorry. Like I said, that you can't play Zubac in the series. You can definitely play him and they will play him like 20 minutes and they should. Mm-hmm. But, like, you can't close with him, I don't think. Yeah. Abaka is just not looking mobile right now at all. Um, that's tricky. I mean, you almost have to play Morris at the five, maybe, like to, to try to counteract some of the stuff they're going to do with Luca. But I, I don't know, man. Did you throw Rondo in there? I think Rondo kind of is a guy that should play for them. Um, so I, I think Rondo is their third guy. Five. Like I think yeah, Rondo maybe. is their third guy right now, which is fine. Rondo was, you know, the third or fourth guy on the Lakers who won the title last year, but. Yeah. Rondo's a new player who has played like 15 games with this team, whereas he was with LA for uh, a much longer period before adjusting into that role as like the third or fourth guy. Nick Batum might be the fourth guy right now. Uh, He might be. Patrick Beverly, like they just don't get enough out of him guarding Luca because Luca can see over the top of him to where I think he's particularly valuable in this series. He, He might be someone they have to play. And they should play him for 20 to 25 minutes a night, maybe 20 minutes a night, just to kind of burn out some of their guards, especially when Jalen Brunson's on the court. I think that Beverly's useful, but I I mean, like, I I think that their adjustment is that they're going to have to put one of Kawhi or Paul George. I I know that the talking point has been Kawhi, and I think that I saw Ty Lue say that Kawhi's going to get some minutes on Luka. I think I would actually put George on him because I think George fights through screens better than Kawhi Mm -hmm. does like he gets really skinny kind of going over the top of those screens and with both Ibaka and Zubats likely playing if not flat almost certainly drop most of the time Uh, I I think that that's more important when it comes to defending Luka yeah I I think I'm with you on the Paul George thing Um, 
And also, I, like, his rear view contests are pretty good. I, there's yep. a lot of reasons that Paul George might be the choice. Um, I also just think that you, you're going to have to get somebody a little bit quicker instead of trying to, you know, use Kawhi's strength. Maybe you need to use Paul George's agility. Yep. Because Luka is too strong. This is this is the story of the series, I think. How are you going to get someone who's strong enough to guard Luka that can also stay in front of him? That's tough. So with the Mavs, we have a team who knows what their playoff identity is, right? Like they are. Well, yes, give the ball to Luka and hope we make shots, which they did in game one. I mean, they hit 47% right. of their threes in game one. Unlikely to happen again. Right. Like, I, I don't think they're going to shoot that well regularly. Been one of the worst three-point shooting teams <laughs> like on open, like uncontested catch and shoot threes, they've been awful for most of the year. But like, see, like that stuff, I don't think is going to hold because like Kristaps can shoot, Jalen Brunson can shoot, Tim Hardaway can shoot. Tim Hardaway's a bit streaky, but he can shoot. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, Brunson can shoot, but doesn't shoot. The volume's not there. Uh, right. Tim Hardaway is the only guy I think I trust as a shooter. Porzingis is up and down. Um, you know, there's so many other yeah. things you have to worry about with Porzingis that the shooting sometimes becomes an afterthought, even when he's hitting. Because some of the other stuff can be so so bad, he's got to really be hitting to ignore the other stuff with him. Depending on how he's guarding pick and rolls, but yeah, they just—I I think they got an an aberration of a shooting game from their role players. Four out of five from three from Dorian Finney-Smith, and those yeah. are going to happen. And you have to win those games, which the Mavs did. So this is different than Miami. So the Mavs won the game where they get their their hot shooting. So now what happens? Well, you're going to see a counter from from the Clippers. Um, I don't know how you necessarily counter hot shooting so we'll see what they what the clippers change i expect the change is going to be in how they handle luca and i would honestly i would take away everyone else and i'd say look we're going to wall up we're not going to let you get to the basket we're going to try to keep you off the line and let's see how the threes look yeah i I think that's absolutely how you defend luca it's just really easier said than done because he's so strong i think (laughs) like yeah yeah exactly exactly (laughs) um I think that Dallas is a team that knows what they are and knows what they're doing. And I think the Clippers are still trying to find themselves and that, that opens a window. I still think the Clippers are going to win the series because I think they're going to adjust to how they defend Luca mm-hmm. and make life marginally more difficult on him. And if you make life marginally more difficult on him, there could be some significant returns for you if you're the I, Clippers. I but Losing that game, that one game, though, definitely has the Clippers in the danger zone. Yeah, because I don't know that they had a two-game buffer. You know, I I think I'm, I might have said I had the Clippers in six, but all of a sudden losing game one at home, and you're in trouble a little bit. And, and you know, because the Mavs can get hot. It's just that they're hot or cold. So, like, in game two, they might just be hot again, and we'll see. Uh, I don't expect it. Um, but, yeah, the Clippers have got to figure out the defense, and I just don't know what they're going to do with their big. Uh, I, I really thought Ibaka was going to look better than this by now. But it's not even their bigs. Like They need to figure out what they're going to do with the backcourt, too. I, like, I agree with that, too. It's kind of no, everything. Too, but, the, but the bigs, like you can't play guys that can just be targeted in the playoffs like that. Yeah. You just can't. Like the, yeah. What happened to Zubac is what people pretend happened to Rudy Gobert. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. Um I think the Clippers win the series, but it's going to be tight. The last series here is that Denver Blazers game. That That is probably the starkest turn I've seen in a playoff game where I was riding so high in that second quarter watching the Don, uh, the Nikola Jokic versus Damian Lillard show. I mean, good God, Dame was just fucking incredible in that second quarter. Throwing haymakers, man. Throwing absolute haymakers as Denver went down the court calmly and continued to get buckets. Yeah, Jokic coming down and I'm going to stick this three in your eye after you hit the logo. It kind of sucks a little bit of that energy out of the logo shot. The other thing that sucks the energy out of the game is when uh, knockoff Ben Taylor and the rest of the officiating crew decides to totally take over the game and just make that a miserable experience for everyone. Uh, that That was bad. That was very frustrating. Yeah, not great. <laughs> so the thing that I think Denver actually did really well in that game was they got Jokic the ball more in the middle of the floor. Mm-hmm. And I think that that really opened up the rest of their offense around him. Uh, I, I felt like in game one, they got him the ball a little bit more like in the post and beyond the three point line. This time it felt like they made more of a concerted effort to like come down, set a screen for him, 
get him the ball like kind of at the top of the key or like even at the foul line if they could and then just kind of let him diagnose what was happening around him or just like shoot because he made a bunch of those little um like 16 footers from the middle of the court like i think that that makes their offense just much more difficult to manage also yusuf nurkic fouling out with 10 minutes left like makes portland's defense a total non-starter just period mm-hmm. point blank so and they played it look nurkic was a zero in the game plus minus wise so they they played even in those nurkic minutes in spite of Jokic cooking him yeah which he did Jokic he did. absolutely cooked him but nobody else did and and i think that that's big but this is not a series for nurkic unfortunately because he has nothing for Jokic. not not at this point not with what Jokic is doing this season but but the problem uh, yeah. is that it, it is a series for nurkic for Portland. Well, right. They because they need, they're right. Yeah, they their defense it. falls apart without him. It's a really bad matchup <laughs> for him, and, and you know he's going to be in foul trouble the whole time. Um, I, I would I would say the biggest difference for Denver is getting thirty minutes of Monte Morris instead of twenty or whatever they got in the first the first game. It was less Monte Morris. Uh, getting Monte Morris out there gives them a guy who is at least a marginal starter in the NBA. Like Monte Morris probably starts at point guard for four or five teams in the league. He's a yeah. high-end backup. Um, and, and it's just such a big difference over Compazzo and, and Rivers and, I mean, Marcus Howard getting minutes uh, just because you have a guy who's almost NBA-sized out there playing defense and, and he doesn't make mistakes and all the things that we love about Monty Morris. So I think that that's big for them. Also, Compazzo had a better game in game two, especially defensively, although Dame did get hot as hell because he's able to shoot over Compazzo. And, you know, look, man, I'm 5'9". If a guy is 6'3", it's tough to contest that shot. And Dame is not scared anyway. So uh, not surprised. And then they made the switch to Shaq Harrison and then ultimately made the switch to Aaron Gordon, which I expect from the jump in Game 3. Like, I think the Nuggets now are going to win this series because they are figuring out how to guard Damian Lillard. And yeah. it's it's funny to say because he scored 42. But he only had 10 in the second half. They took him out of the game in the third quarter. Yeah. I also want to shout out Shaq Harrison, too, who I think uh-huh. is a really underrated, just generally, like, player in the NBA. It's I think stunning I, to me disagree. that he's on a two-way. I disagree. I disagree. <laughs> I'm just going to disagree because this is a guy who's like an 11th guy. He's on, on a two-way, though. Yeah, he is on a two-way. That yes, but that's kind of where you're at. Like if you don't break in, you you are going to go through those contracts. You're going to bounce around a little bit. I, I just I think he's a really nice player, but we spend so much time talking about Shaq Harrison, and it's just yeah, it's reasonable. an odd thing. And Shaq Harrison, by the way, I like him. He just unfortunately is the guy I think of when we do this because he, like he gets released by the Bulls, and people are like, "Oh my God, the Bulls are morons," and it's like. Okay, well, where is he on the depth chart in Denver? I mean, he just Let's like kind of, relax. kind of flipped it, it, the playoffs. He, was great. he kind of flipped the playoff well, game well, a little bit with his energy. This like. is it, right? Like so, he's <laughs> so, but he's a utility guy. He yeah. can defend. I actually thought that he had an opportunity there with the way he was being guarded. That if he had if he had kept pressuring the defense with cuts, uh, and and maybe in in game three if he gets a run, and because I expect him to after the defensive performance, uh, he was good, legitimately good. Uh, out there and so he is a guy that I would have maybe given an opportunity for uh, to before I went to like Marcus Howard because I think that they've got shooting available you know you've got Porter you've got Gordon you've got Jokic you've got Rivers you don't have the defense especially with the guards so I I, Shaq Harrison played 10 minutes in game two I wouldn't be shocked if we see him up to 15 especially if Dame starts getting hot early I wonder if they go to him fast I think they should like I, I think he is. Why not start him? Why not start him and just see, like, see what happens if you say, uh, Shaq, you and Aaron Gordon are responsible yeah, I, for Damian Lillard. I think Let's that's see how it, it goes. Yeah, I, I don't think that they'll start him. I think it's you want to have one of Aaron Gordon or Shaq Harrison on the court, basically. Mm-hmm. Oh, like, I'm just thinking you get you get Gordon and put him on Nurkic so that he gets involved in some of these screening actions. You could really, you could really kind of pre-switch this and and yeah give dame a hard time i i'm again it's dame though so you never know if it's going to work or not yeah austin rivers kind of got cooked a little bit <sighs> yeah 
everybody gets cooked by Dame, right? It's yeah. okay. I, I mean, Just like, look, like leave. part of this is trying to stop the unstoppable, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. It's hard. It's really hard. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've been very impressed by Nikola Jokic. He's averaging like a calm 36 and 12 right now in this series. Just laid back, relaxed. Uh, Compazzo, I thought, like you said, was better in game two because they shifted him. When they shifted him off of Lillard, I thought he was better because he's really smart. He's really annoying. And you can kind of just let him do his thing off the ball as opposed to like having him try to pester Lillard, which I just don't think he can do. Um, He's just not big enough. Yeah. So I think Composo is like a valuable player in the series. I think Monte Morris is obviously a valuable player in the series. Um, I thought Paul Millsap gave them like pretty good minutes last night. So I thought Portland was going to green. Yeah, he did. Uh, I thought Portland was going to win this series coming in. I'm less sold on that now because I I thought that Nurkic was going to be able to hold his own on the court. I'm not saying like he would stop Jokic, but I thought, hey, maybe if Jokic goes for 26 instead of 36, that that's probably a win. And by the way, Jokic averaged like 26 points per game. So I think if they can stop Jokic from getting all of those points, maybe this can be a thing. But like with the way that Denver figured out how to get him the ball in more dangerous areas, and then with Portland's complete and utter lack of response to that, I'm actually just like very worried now about Portland kind of adjusting to what Denver did in game two. Yeah. Look, Denver would have been my favorite if Jamal Murray didn't get hurt. So if they can figure out how to survive in the backcourt, I think they can win this series. But they, they're not surviving in the backcourt right now. <laughs> I mean, it's just like 63 points from Dame and, and CJ. Not a lot of games that Portland's going to lose when they score that much. So I, I think the Nuggets definitely got a little bit lucky um, to withstand almost 50% three-point shooting from Portland and win this game. But that's a good sign if you're Denver. And by the way, like, what do you do with Cantor? And like you can't play him, right? You can't play Cantor. And I mean, I wonder if you know who's playing backup center for the Nuggets. It's Paul Millsap a lot. Yeah. You know, why are you like maybe Rondé can be your backup center? That's kind of what I was thinking too. Maybe honestly, Nasir Little would be a better option. Derek Jones, get athletic. Yeah. Not Cantor. Not Cantor. I think that Rondé would be my adjustment play Rondé as the backup center and kind of see what you can do again a guy that you can't play against Jokic just straight up like that's not going to go well um but like and and like you can't play Harry Giles against Jokic either because Giles will just get cooked off the ball like Jokic is too smart at moving and he's too strong for Harry Giles but it's hard because if Nurkic plays like eight straight minutes or what you almost have to match Nurkic's minutes with Jokic if your stats, otherwise, it's just really hard, and, and I, I don't, I don't know what you do. I, I don't know what you do if you're Terry Stotts in this series. Uh, if you're not just like minute matching Nurkic for Jokic every single time. I mean, that, that's the move. You you gotta have to do that, but you need Nurkic to stay out of foul trouble, and I just don't think it's gonna happen, especially now that Jokic has buttered up the referees so much. <laughs> you know, basically saying this is a thankless job and, you know, I, I feel bad for those guys. And uh, after they had a rough night in game two. So Jokic yeah, is taking 40 free throws in game three. I, I, look, this series could be a wrap. <laughs> That'd be amazing. Uh, that'd be amazing. Like, it, who is their second best option on Jokic? Is it Covington? Probably. It could be. I, I don't know. Man, nobody's big enough. That's the, that's the thing is. um yeah. You know, Derek Jones is too light. Rondé might have the best shot. Um, you know, can, can they get an offensive lineman from can the Seattle Seahawks? Offensive because lineman. Jokic is too much of a load for all these little guys. I mean, you see it. He yes. he yes. wants a mismatch. So you, you have a hard time going small against him. Yeah, you might be able to run them a little bit on the offensive end. Uh, but he is going to score a bucket every single time down because that's he can shoot over the top, is. and he's such a good shooter now. Like it's and he's <laughs> a, he is a fucking dump truck, man. Like he is just going to back his ass up underneath the basket, 
and lay the ball in. Okay. Let's close on this. Your biggest hot take going forward for the playoffs. Man. Oh, my God. I mean, people were calling my Bucks sweep from the other day a hot take. Um, and it might be five games, but that's still a sweep. Who cares? I'm good with that. I'm uh, good with a Bucks I don't sweep think it's being a, it. Yeah, yeah, I don't think it's a hot take. I don't think that's a hot take. I don't know that I have any, man, because so much of it is I still think we've got more questions than answers after the first, uh, you know, what are we? Yeah, I agree. Four or five days in. Yeah. I think we have more questions than answers. So I don't have a lot of uh, projections or takes or opinions, really. Like, so much of this rests on the individual matchups from night to night and what the health is looking like going forward, in particular in in the series with uh, Utah and and Phoenix and L.A. So, yeah, yeah, my big takes are I think people should maybe pump the brakes on some of the takes, you know. Yeah, I agree. But other than that, I don't really have any. Trying to think if I have one. I really do think. This has been a season of, I'd say, I'll tell you, this has been a season of very few takes for me. Because it's so much just trying to scramble around figuring out what is happening at any given moment. You know, guys have been in and out of the lineup all year. And I'm taking kind of the same approach now where I just need to sit back. I need to see a few games. You know, I'm much better at calling game four of a series than I am game one. Yeah. That's just, you know, it's just kind of how it works. So, you know, give me, give me a few more games and I, I might have some takes, but I, I think I'll stand by this, that if Denver still had Jamal Murray, I felt, I feel very good in hindsight about the way I felt about them coming into the playoffs, but they don't have Jamal Murray. So it doesn't matter. I'll say this. I what think about Phoenix, you? you got a hot take. I think Phoenix is a better team than the Lakers just straight up. Like I, I that's kind of a hot take given what the series prices were coming in. Sure. I think Phoenix is a, if Chris Paul is healthy, this is, I think Phoenix is just a better team than the Lakers right now. Um, with the way that Anthony Davis looks right now, with the way that LeBron looks, I just kind of think they're a better team. Uh, they're, they can beat you in more ways than LA can. That might not matter because the Lakers have LeBron fucking James. And <laughs> that guy is unbelievable. <laughs> he is the best basketball player. Uh, of my lifetime, I think. Like, look, I didn't get to watch Michael Jordan uh, as much as everyone else did. I was eight years old when he was done with the Bulls. I remember watching the final clinching game against Utah, but like, I can't tell you that beyond having gone back and watching tape or watch tape on Michael Jordan, that's not really like a series of events that I was like consciously alive for and breaking down basketball. LeBron James is the best basketball player. Like, of my conscious basketball watching lifetime. And that might be enough for them to beat Phoenix. But I think Phoenix is a better team. Like I think Phoenix is tougher and is um, maybe not tougher, but I think that they have, they have more ways to beat you than the Lakers do. If Anthony Davis is not, uh, not a hundred percent. Yeah. Especially if those guys aren't back, then yeah, that's, that's a real problem. Okay. Uh, Dave Dufour, tell the people where they can find your work. Only at The Athletic, exclusively. That's it. Woo. It's the only place. Yeah. Go find my work at, at The Athletic. All over The Athletic. He all is. over The Athletic, to be He's, fair. But it's only there. This man stays ready to podcast at all times. Dave Dufour, thank you for coming on. This has been the Game Theory Podcast. Please remember, rate, review, subscribe, do everything you can to support the show. We will be back later this week. Matt Penny and I are already locked and loaded. For a podcast coming up, we're going to talk a bit about the overtime deal. We're going to talk about uh, some draft prospects. But until then, we'll talk soon. Bye.